0: I'm Mike Gillis,
1: and I'm Casey Dorn, and this is Radio versus the Martians.
0: This month's single serving selection American Movie.
2: It's all right. It's okay. There's something to live for. Jesus told me so.
0: (laughs) That's right. So, of of course, we are talking about, uh, from the year 1999, a documentary called American Movie. The
1: vaunted year 1999, a glorious year for American film.
0: It's a spe- very specifically American film. <laughs> yes. Everything. It was like a movie called American Outlaws, American Beauty. Yeah. American Gangster, I think, came out around that time. Oh,
1: American movie, which is um, what we're talking about. American Pie. Oh, really? Ninety nine? It was about Fucking Pies?
0: It was something about American Blank. It was a it was a big year for that. So of course, this is a documentary directed by Chris Smith, produced by Sarah Price. Yeah, who
1: the two workhorses for this film. It's a two person film, basically.
0: It's uh it's a It's a thing to watch
1: well, and to help us decode, digest uh debrief is our old friend Patrick Johnson. Hey yo, <laughs>
0: thanks for being here Patrick. yeah, it's always a pleasure so uh Patrick, one of the things we like to do with folks, and you've you yeah, I think you've gone through the process on a single serving selection before or You've been on a bunch of episodes, it's hard to remember which one, yeah. but we like to ask folks uh, if you could synopsize what American movie is about in like a paragraph or two. What is this thing?
2: I will do what I can. Uh, so this is a a documentary crew came to, to because this sort of self-diagnosed loser who, who is ready to make the movie of his dreams. He's ready to make Northwestern, which is a project that he has had incubating for, for a lot of years. Uh, And then he very quickly, very early into the process, realizes he can't make Northwestern. He's crazy. He's terribly in debt. And he didn't even finish his last project. And so the making of... I think it's called the American movie, The Making of Northwestern. is actually about the making of his earlier film, Coven. (laughs) Coven. 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 That's C-O-V-E-N, Coven. Yeah. Uh, And you you get to see this really earnest, uh, uh, dedicated crazy person uh try and try and make a film in wisconsin yeah. i i think yeah. and see all of the they're not good at it, it it's <laughs> there's definitely you, you get to see all the travails and and sort of incompetence and and um as they try to put out a movie and 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 you get an appreciation for for every movie out there in the world, even the really bad ones, just how much blood, sweat, and tears really goes into it, and because you get this behind-the-scenes look at these people who are maybe don't have the the necessary training or education or skills, but they're really they're going to make this this thing and um, and and see how it all comes together. It's a really I think it's a f- fascinating look at how that happens. So
0: Casey, um, you were the person who actually recommended we do American Movie on Radio versus the Martian. Yes. So I've, I've really got to ask, uh, what makes American Movie worth talking about?
1: Uh, I think there's. I think Patrick already said it. The story is about a very earnest guy who loves movies and who, despite his sort of foibles, him being probably an alcoholic. And a guy who can't keep his relationships together, and uh, despite that, has the dream of making the Great American Movie. And even when things are falling apart, he still can somehow steal himself and get back out there in the freezing cold and rally together a half a dozen people to do it. And th- there's a David and Goliath sort of story here, I think, that makes it uh, that makes it like kind of a treat from just a pr- perspective of a narrative for him to actually succeed. And then there is. Mark Borchard the filmmaker and his cast of people around him that are really what sells this movie and we'll talk a little bit more about them but it's just the insane colorful cast of real people who are around this guy's life that make it feel like a screenwriter could never write these people.
0: Yeah, especially his his friend uh Mike Shank yeah mike shank seems (laughs) and this is the thing i'm going to give credit to to chris smith the the director for is that it would have been so incredibly easy to just laugh at, at people in this rather than just kind of point the camera and let this play out mike shank is a musician who's had drug and alcohol problems in the past um they have clearly taken some kind of permanent toll on him.
2: <laughs> yeah, I I spent the entire movie trying to figure it out. Like because I don't know what he was like before the drugs and alcohol, but yeah. I don't I don't know what drugs would do that to you. Is this like particular. a Barney
0: Gumble thing? Was there like a B C A D you know kind of line something to separate it? It it feels like there's an origin story, you know, sort of <laughs> how Mike begins. Well, he but, does he does sort of give
1: his transformation story, right? Like I think the, perhaps the best part of Mike Shank in the movie, besides him doing his acoustic guitar soundtrack, especially the so acoustic good. guitar Mister Bojangles, <laughs> which yeah. is really good, is his story about how he nearly died. The reason why he quit drugs because he nearly died from a blotter of acid that was spiked, and he went to the uh, went to the ER and nearly died, and wanted to drop the acid again. Uh, at,
0: at In the it, hospital.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, and then he comes out of that and he's sort of this guy who speaks very slowly. And when he's given directions, you know, Mark Borchard, the filmmaker guy, has to, like, ask him again what's going on because he clearly is just not <laughs> receiving the information. Yeah, there's,
0: he doesn't <laughs> seem to take anything personally. There's something very type B about Mike. Um, he... Maybe it's because he's not receiving all the information that, you know, Mark is a very type A guy Yeah, that he never does anything halfway and he frequently does half more than he needs to. (laughs) That the person is already there. You don't need to keep trying to sell it. And he just doesn't know when to quit a lot of the time. And there's, there's a reason why when you see like a production meeting, you see a second production meeting up to like fourth of a, and there's fewer people there every time. And it just seems like Mike is a very, or Mark, the, the filmmaker is a very exhausting guy. And maybe the fact that maybe Mike's not picking up all of it may gives him a longer fuse with this sort of thing. Um, at one point, what was it? Uh, he has Mike, uh, smashing up this car for a scene and asks him later, Mike. He's like, "Oh, was that really cathartic?" And he's like, "Yeah, man, that was really cathartic." And he's like, man, "You know what cathartic is?" No, <laughs> he just has no idea. And there's something kind of lovable about him. Like you can't feel, you can't feel anything negative towards him because he just seems like an utterly harmless person. Yeah,
1: and you almost you almost don't feel it. In this way, you could say, "Well, some of this sort of thing seems, seems exploitative." Like some of these people. Their troubles are painted all over the screen. Their personal troubles are painted all over the screen, like them going up to pick Ken Keen from the drunk tank or whatever oh, good at the God. hospital or something. Like you, would m- m- or or just ha- basically, they have their cameras are in their house for the better part of two years. You see the ugly side of a yeah. lot of people's personalities. I mean, you s- and you see how Mark Borchardt's family is c- utterly dysfunctional, um, and I think that it's. First and foremost, is it's very brave, I would say, of everyone who allowed themselves to be on camera because um, just not even trying to be exploitative. This is not like a Mark, what's his name, the the uh, the Apprentice producer guy. What's the guy that the the reality Mark, TV like show, Birdcet or something, whatever. Like this doesn't have sort of the construction of a reality TV show where it's sort of cynically and consciously edited to have. To, you know, to ramp up the conflict and to find those little moments where you can spike, you know, like, oh, that's hilarious or oh, like he's, you know, it doesn't have that people are being themselves in every
0: way that matters. It doesn't feel like the movie is intentionally prodding reactions out of people to try to to heighten the drama. And that's actually one of the things I kind of respect about it. But at the same time, there's so much kind of ugly personal vulnerability that comes out of people that when it does happen, it makes me wonder if Mark Burchard <laughs> saw this before they released the documentary and that he was willing to allow it to be released because he doesn't come across really well a lot of the time. Yeah. Well, that,
2: I mean, you give your permission to be filmed. You don't mm-hmm. usually give your subject editorial discretion after yeah. after the fact. Yeah. I did. I liked the light touch that the documentary filmmakers made. There were a few moments where you saw them asking, actually asking a question, but mostly let the subjects speak for themselves. Yeah. Um. There is that question that always comes up for me, is sort of like, hey, have these people forgotten that they're on camera? And the answer is yes. Yeah, if of you, course. If you have a camera around you all the time for that period of time, uh, you your reactions revert to normal because you can't be on guard. Um, yeah. You get
0: comfortable after a while that you're used to people being there. There's a book that I really enjoyed called Them Adventures with Extremists by John Ronson. And oh, he, yeah. he interviews, like, clan leaders and racists and weirdos, but also conspiracy people, like Alex Jones has a chapter. It's easy to find that chapter because there's a lot of dialogue in all caps. Um, <laughs> and the same thing happens in every one of these chapters, which is that people get too comfortable. That they have this image they're trying to put out about themselves to dissuade people from stereotypes. See, I'm not that all bad, I'm, I'm all this. But the people around them, their entourage, always gets too comfortable. You forget that there's a journalist in the room. You forget there's a camera there and they always say something dumb. And that's the most telling, interesting stuff because those are the moments where people show you who they really are. And you see a lot of that in this movie. Um, This was my first time seeing American movie. Oh, wow. I'd heard a lot about it. I mean, it's a movie that has sort of a long shadow that it casts and stuff that I knew. I New, you know, people tend to emphasize the the funny bits, the strange bits, Um, especially the pronunciation of it's by the way, Mark, it's Coven. (laughs) Yep, (laughs) it's not Coven is not a word, even unless you want to add an umlaut. (laughs) umlaut. Is that the thing with the two dots? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I was not prepared for how completely and just shockingly sad it was at some point. Yeah, Mm, yeah, that I think that. More than anything, this feels like a movie about a guy trying to battle existential dread. Absolutely. With sheer will. That frequently a lot of the people that he's around uh, don't give a shit about the artistic nature of his project. They really don't. That they're, they're there because they're family or they're friends. They're doing him a favor. And it's like, like Uncle Bill.
1: Yeah. Oh, we do need to talk about Uncle Bill. Uncle Bill he's is like an octogenarian. He's uh, his he's, father's brother, I think.
0: He's his father's brother. Yeah. He has like three hundred and fifty thousand dollars in the bank, yet he lives in this like dilapidated single wide. He's he's like a ho- borderline hoarder. Lives lives alone. You know, he, it really feels like there's some form of dementia that's starting to set in. I think his brother says at one point that he. Had, at some point, Bill had been an incredibly sharp guy who always gave really good advice. And the thing that's interesting is that he's giving money to his nephew because it's his nephew, not because he's convinced that this is going to become a big thing. Well, well, no, and he's not happy about it. No. Yeah, he's not happy about it. It's it, it. There's a real sense of coercion in it because he always makes the sales pitch to to bill that bill couldn't give a shit about like this is going to be big your name's going to be in the credits you're going to be this and say so, like when he gives bill the first line of the movie i think in mark's thinking that's a gift for giving him the money it's a gift you know like hey you're going to be in the movie this is a cool thing to be in this movie and bill clearly doesn't give a shit he really doesn't want to be there. It clearly doesn't make him happy. But I think that there's a certain mindset that Mark has and he plays it out on other people, which is he universalizes the things that would work on him to other people. Like, right. This is going to be big. You're going to get out of here. There's going to be money. You know, what kind of you want? Red or white wine. Uh, he throws that up because that's the stuff that he knows would convince him. But, you know, I think Bill just wants to watch his stories and have a beer once and then. Yeah, yeah
2: so, I mean, B- Bill is a he—he he a shell of a man. He, Bill he had some great love who who is gone, and he keeps saying that he doesn't believe in anything, he doesn't care about anything, and uh, Bill and his dad, are tra- or Mark and his dad are trying to t- you know, tell Bill, you have to be upbeat, and he's like, yeah, what good does that ever do? <laughs> <laughs> I interpreted the first line, you know, uh, it's all right, it's okay, there's something to live for, as in part that it's that's the line that he's trying to f- mark is trying to feed bill throughout the movie yeah he's trying to hammer hammer you know you have to be upbeat you have to believe in things you have to be living for something it, you know this has to have a meaning yeah and that, that that just then took took root in the film He he gave him that line because that's what he wants him to believe in part he even
0: tells him when he's he's trying to
2: direct him in a
0: painfully drawn out process of trying to direct him in dialogue it's you know, doing ADR with him. Take 32. Take 32. It's like
1: saying it 32 times or more. Say it like you believe it. And he just outright says, I don't
0: believe it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's just, you start feeling sorry for this, this poor old man. I mean, this is the thing with Mark is that again, I think there's this fear. I think that, I think that he loves movies, but I think a lot of his motivation doesn't necessarily come from him wanting to create a great piece of art. I think he clearly has watched and paid attention to a lot of things about how to make a movie, but when you hear him talk about his life and the people around him, and wanting something else, because this is a guy who does odd jobs, he like delivers the newspaper in the morning, and during the day he like vacuums out like a mausoleum at like a cemetery. Yeah, um, he throws out as a pejorative in anger at one point, like you know those forty hour a week working motherfuckers. Yeah. He clearly doesn't want that life and he seems sort of sees that as like him battling against being a failure. Oh yeah. Right. Like he's terrified of that. And it's he's talking about the people around him. The people that he's bringing into this project it's like there's it's a there's a way that he seems to resent them but he also desperately needs them because you can't make a movie alone so he's always prodding prodding them and kind of bullying them
1: well i, I mean if you take i think i think bill is the best sort of example because he's ultimately the one that mark needs the most because he he, he he says early on that's funny i just borrowed gas money from my dad you know and he won't loan me any more money that's yeah. sort of thing uh, with the uncle bill yes it does it is coercive it is it is also sort of from his perspective is this old fool's going to die and you know his money's going to go to somebody else and is not going to make you know none of it's going to go to my movie so i got to pry it out of his hands there also is in a real way there is a tenderness that mark has with his uncle bill that i think is in addition to sort of his well the reason why he's here is because he wants to pry money out of his hands it almost seems like Mark is the only one that ever goes to visit Uncle Bill. That, no, I get that sense. Because no one yeah. would want to go. And, and I'm sure that trailer he smells. Does, he does on, help it, him take a bath at
0: one point. yeah, On Thanksgiving. <laughs>
1: because yeah. it gets him drunk. <laughs> Which is obviously another another is way it, to sort of like get, to get him to uh, be your buddy. But I, I still think it says something about Mark that like. He understands that Bill is not going to be alive for very long. And so there, and he probably is not going to have many more of those moments. So there's some, there's part of that that it's sort of like that's special and tender and not cynical, not necessarily cynical. Yeah. I don't,
2: I don't think he sees it in any cynical way. And that's, uh, Mark all is sort of megalomania. He, he does, he does care about the people in his life. He's very incredibly self focused and driven. Um, but I, I think he, he earnestly cares for Bill. One thing I want to say about, about Bill is that his, presence in the film is one of the reasons why this documentary is interesting because the bills of the world don't end up in movies Yeah, no, that's true. Um, and that the, the setting of the film and the characters there is something there is an existential uh, uh, sadness that I think permeates everyone's life almost everyone who's on camera seems like oh man this is the life that they gotta settle for and
0: it seems kind of like everyone else is resigned to it and that Mark is somebody who rages against it constantly, mm-hmm. and it causes him a lot of pain in the, the way that I think other people have kind of numbed themselves to it. And they're willing to help this guy out, but I don't think anyone really believes that he's ever going to finish this movie, either Northwestern or Coven. It's like... Well, I mean, you have the guy, the uh, R- uh, Richard uh, Jorge, what's his, the,
1: the actor, the, oh, is this the, 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 the thespian th- guy? The
0: guy with a beard who's clearly like, really... <laughs>
1: Oh, he's, I love him. He's They're standing outside the coven premiere where, of course, the movie was just finished a few, uh, like, processed a few hours before. Um, and he, he even he says, I'll believe it when I see it on screen. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Mark's entire life has been sort of like, oh, I'm going to do this project, it's going to happen, and then, you know, failure, failure after failure after failure. Um, what is it that he says... What was it he says? Not just to drink and dream, but rather to create and complete. Yeah. And that in and of itself is like such a beautiful through line for the arc of Mark. Because at the, at the very beginning, they intro it by showing at the very beginning um, him writing at the la- very last minute writing dialogue for his Halloween radio show. And of course, once you... See the actors and hear their perf- how stilted their performances are. You're just like, oh my god, this is amateur hour. And then it pa- the camera pans over and he's holding a glass of beer and he is lit. His eyes are so dilated and he's flushed and he's just like, you can see him waving around because he's so drunk. And then the next scene he's, you know, he's saying like, man, I would just said there was too much, too much beer and weed then I should have been paying attention to the actors performances. Like this is that's his whole through line is like if he if he he could get there if he just stopped wanting to just escape, you know, stop wanting to escape and focus on the creating and completing.
0: I think that's a big part of it is what is the motivation here? And I think escape is at the heart of it that he wants to not live this life that everyone else seems I won't say satisfied again, resigned is the word that I used before, but they feel like, you know what? This is, this. why don't you just get a normal job? Um, because a normal job wouldn't give him the freedom to be able to create this thing. And the creating this thing is only driving him deeper and deeper into debt and making his life that much harder. And it's putting wear on every relationship in his life. And considering that this is a, a short film project that he'd kind of abandoned or had faded away from a while ago. I think that he's basically burnt a lot of the bridges and confidence, both as avenues to get money, but also people that are willing to sort of put up with his kind of dictatorial directing style that he really kind of comes hard on people and stuff like that. Like he, he, He has this platonic ideal of what this movie is in his head, and he just doesn't have the tools. Also, uh, you figure that he probably, they
1: don't say this specifically, you figure that he probably never actually has been on a set where there's another director who's been directing. There's ever in his life, the only time he's ever been there is being the
2: director of his own movie. Yeah. All right. So I want to say, I think I've actually solved the psyche of Mark. Oh, do tell. I've got it. Um. You talk about these people telling him constantly he needs to get a real job, he needs to you know quit drinking. Um, his, his brother says I thought he was going to be a serial killer, but <laughs> um, that now he probably should just work in a factory. So th- there's this, this moment, there's a lot of uh, connections with his, his drinking and his art and his sort of aspirations for of meaning. And he keeps coming back to the cemetery, works in the cemetery. He talks about going to the cemetery to to film all the time. Um, So there's a little bit of a lengthy quote, but he said, the graveyard is like a stage. All of these dead people can't bitch at you. You don't have to hear their opinions. They are here as decent human beings, finally. Finally. (laughs) Parents would be coming after you because you had a movie camera in one hand and a beer in the other. That was, was and is the joy of life. And that wasn't tolerated when you're 14, 15 years old. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so, uh, I, I think this guy, he had a troubled home life. His, his parents were fighting all the time. And there was this window in his in his life where he was hanging out with his friends. He was getting drunk and he was had his film camera. And this is when he starts to dream Northwestern. This is when he starts to discover something precious and beautiful and meaningful that transcends... All of the ordinary bullshit. Like, who doesn't remember a time in your life when you were young, when you're like, "Oh my god, everything my parents, you know, want and and believe in, and that's all bullshit." And I get it. I get the core of life and what it all means. Yeah. And he's trying so hold, hard to hold on to that. And because that was the moment in his life where he felt happy and connected to meaning, that's his point of arrested development, right? Yeah, that he, yeah. everybody has that point where they sort of stop growing, and. His attitude is very I can see the 14,15-year-old kid in him. Um, even I saw some like later interviews, and I can still see the 14, 15-year-old kid, you know it's his man, every other word, and yeah um, I think what, you know what he wants is he wants to drink and make art and get back to what means something, and that he's struggling against uh, the, the sort of emptiness of the world that he's presented with.
0: Yeah, I th- I think it terrifies him. I think there's a lot about the world it terrifies ter- me. Yeah, <laughs> I, I get that. That's a part of his his psychology that really speaks to me. That that sort of fear. I mean, we're trying to create a creative project, and it frequently feels like you're just yelling into a void. And ah! I yeah. Speaking of which. Um, I- I did spend a lot of time in this movie worrying about Mike and trying to figure this out. And I was like, is he a secret genius? Is he gonna s-? <laughs> It felt like if this was a scripted movie, this whole thing would be moving towards something at the beginning of the third act where Mike would have this gem of wisdom <laughs> that would turn everything on its head. He's a little bit of a
2: Carl Pilkington genius, I think. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. I I think what it, what kind of blew my mind, the moment with him was that everyone is doing ADR screams and mike's scream <laughs> yes. yep he's like a he's like a scream master um <laughs> there's a lot a of scream rep- savant. there's a lot
1: of repression clearly in him that you hear getting out when he does this sort of completely
0: falsetto just blood curdling scream it's this it's this passion and feeling and emotion and energy that you never get out of him. And I was like, holy shit, I wonder if he still takes scream work <laughs> because that's amazing. Yep. Um, it, it, and that was the th- other thing too with this this movie. Casey, you did mention that the movie Coven uh, is actually on on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. I did watch it and I kind of didn't know what to expect. I mean, hmm. they show a couple short images of the movie as sort of a quick montage so I didn't really know what to expect because, um, like I sort of mentioned, that, that clearly Mark is a perfectionist who doesn't have the tools or the talent really to create perfection. Um, tools and talent, not only just a qu- film equipment, but also the people around him, the yeah. talent that he has on hand. Yeah. Um, and what I kind of found fascinating about actually watching the movie was that it's a real mixed bag. Yes. Uh the writing is not great at all. It's mm. really bad. The acting no. is terrible. Yes. Um but occasionally and this is the third that shocked me the most is a couple still images of like outdoor shots of nature and trees and stuff and even just the opening credit sequence like oh that was actually really good. Yeah. Um there's some great there's actually some pretty decent shot composition. Totally. There's places that have too many cuts to too many sub shots and stuff like that there's other ones that just go forever and don't change the camera at all um but the main thing and i didn't even notice this while he was making the movie that he never uses lighting it's just the ambient lighting in the room that he's using so frequently there will be there will be shots that require you to be able to see a person's face and it's just eaten up by shadow yeah and since he's doing this in black and white, not for, I believe an artistic reason. I think he's doing it the same reason Kevin Smith did it for clerks. It's cheap. It's cheap. And <laughs> this is before digital uh, video really became a standard for, for uh, low budget filmmakers because with, with digital video, you can just film whatever and you don't really worry about, you know, having to pay for all that. You don't pay extra except for like, you know, storing it on like a server or something
1: but you don't pay the developers you don't pay color timers or something right you, that you don't pay any of that
0: t- when you're when you're on film every time the camera is on you're burning money and even though he's only doing it in 16mm and he's doing it in black and white every time the camera does anything He's losing money, and that's something he has to develop. That's something he has to buy more of. That's something that he has a limited supply of.
2: That all makes reasonable sense, but I think it's just because the films that you asked for him, for his inspiration, he says "Dawn of the Dead," "Texas Chainsaw Massacre." Yeah, he he loves his his inspiration is this classic horror that was shot in black and white, and a lot of the shot uh, I actually end up watching on YouTube. They have uh, Mike, Mike, Mark, and Mike doing a voiceover or like sort of a watching dawn of the dead no commentary commentary on it uh and it opens up and it's just these long shots of black and white landscape and mike's like oh this looks like coven
0: (laughs) 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 and they they, clearly that's what he's going there's weird things because i think there's sort of a moments where you go Oh, okay. That's actually a really good shot. Yeah. Especially a lot of stuff with like trees and and roads and things like that. I think the quick cuts with the opening credits and the scarecrows was really good. Mm -hmm. And then there are these scene transitions, which are some of the worst fucking things I've ever seen. Yes. Where you're just suddenly in a different place and you're like...
2: Who are these people and why are we here and how'd we get here?
0: Yeah. What is... Is there a time difference? <laughs> oh, I guess that was a hallucination. I don't really know what's going on, and there's just these moments that just kind of break, and it's it's weird. I didn't expect it. The parts that are good to be as good as they are, mm-hmm. uh, but I, it's really kind of a fucking mess. It's it's not good as a whole, and
1: unfortunately for Mark and his sort of grand plans, it's not good enough for 1995
0: is it enough to sell 3000 copies for 14.95 a piece on VHS I, you know and i can
1: only imagine that that in the sort of uh, the sort of ego side of mark Borchardt's mind when he agreed to be to let chris smith follow him around and film him is that he was just thinking Oh man, all we need to do is catch, you know, a couple thousand of the people who are watching this who would like send away and buy my movie. And they have like a call out to Coven movie at the very end of this one. He's it like, probably That's, worked. That's I all. mean it, it probably did. He probably had drinking money, uh, more drinking money than he was used to there for a while. But like you you it's still sort of the end product. The end product is impressive because if you've seen the movie and you know how much hardship there was, but it just couldn't stand on its own. it just it not... needs
0: the context of American movie to be anything yeah because yeah. if if it wasn't something that I'd seen him make parts of, and I know the backstory of him creating this thing, then I couldn't make it through five minutes of this thing
1: It's ironic because he has that they towards the in the third act they're editing the movie together and they're doing they're doing like all nighters. And somebody accidentally clips you know frames wrong and he's pissed off and he's like he's holding his his finger up like with a you know with a couple of millimeters between he's like, people don't come to, people don't come to watch this they come to watch this and he makes an expansive gesture like uh, like if we don't have this, then we don't have anything and that's sort of a me- metaphor for American movie is people really don't come to watch Coven. They're coming to watch sort of the greater drama of Mark Borchard, of which Coven would be not that interesting if you didn't
0: know those characters behind it. I think the, the only way you could sell this to an audience, a theater full of people, is... Double feature? Well, double feature is exactly what I was getting at, which is that if you watch American movie then you do want to send... Like, you know, I can sit here for another half an hour yeah. and, and watch this, because this is suddenly relevant to what I saw before, that I know the backstory of this. But nobody wants to just watch Coven.
2: <laughs> um, <laughs> well, some people do. Well, I mean, but knowing the context, I found it very interesting. If we could talk about the, the plot of Coven a little bit, which I don't... can't say I totally understand. But yeah. um, there is this... Is a guy who is a writer, right? Which is, you know, Mark Mark is clearly a struggling writer. It's about and, a struggling writer. And, of course, you're going to cast yourself as a troubled artist. Right. <laughs> um, who has problems with alcohol. That's, you know, again, familiar. And people are trying to get him to stop. Uh, this movie takes place... Or they started shooting it about two years before American Movie. And uh, Mike actually stops drinking about two years before American Movie which is an interesting sort of lineup there. Right. And Mike is the name of Mark's character yes. in Coven. <laughs> yes, <yeah>. it is. <laughs> and so Mark, as Mike, is sitting in a 12-step meeting with the real Mike, who's right. talking about being on LSD, <laughs> which he really does. Um, but then, so this this Coven of... He's of, of, got to be doing it. <laughs> don't uh, say it. It makes yeah. it sound like oven. <laughs> uh, this, this group of people, who the 12-step group, uh an American movie he describes them as just like, oh, they're not that helpful but in 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 Coven they are obsessed with trying to help him, but then they're also doing weird occultist stuff uh he's being they're people mocking him for his for for being a writer and for trying to do something. At the end, is it his parents that he kills? Who who's he killed at the end of it? And
0: one of them is the guy who brought him into yeah. his his group. Both the group. referral. His yes. friend. Got it. Yeah. And those are both people that are part of the group. And they, I actually got to see this stunt finally in the movie. But <laughs> I, it's very clear that this actor was not told what he was going to do. That he had done some version of it years before. And he openly says in the documentary, it's like, if there was one shot I wish they'd got right, it was this. And it's a bit where there's a fight scene. And Filmed in Mark's
1: parents' kitchen.
0: And he (laughs) slams his head through a real cupboard door, which has been scored to make it sort of break away. And if there's one thing I've learned from watching professional wrestling over the years, which is that if you're going to... Uh, do something that is supposed to break upon contact with a human being that you need to gimmick it so that it's no longer usable as what it's pretending to be. So if you're going to throw a wrestler through a table, you have to do something so that you can't set anything on that table. Otherwise, it is crazy to throw a human back at it. Now, this is a cupboard door that had like an X carved in the back and he's pushing a human forehead at it and you see it hit very hard over and and over over and over again. And it just is some of the most cringeworthy things that I've seen in a documentary. It's like a tie between this and the lady killing the rabbit with a lead pipe and Roger and me. Oh yeah. Where you're just like, Oh God. Oh God. I mean, you, it's like we live in a world of CGI and special effects and stunts. And when you see something really happen, there's something about it that makes it undeniable that this is really a guy Who his head is being slammed into a cupboard door, a real cupboard door, (laughs) and wow, um, you really—I'm just gonna say—if you're making a movie, you really have to think more carefully about your actor's safety. Yeah, (laughs) because it is—it is hard to watch.
1: Well, I mean, uh, Mark Borchardt is a guerrilla filmmaker. Like, uh, I doubt he had—I doubt he got permits to film anywhere even if the city of Milwaukee has a permitting system for filming, which they probably do. They want money. I doubt he put, paid for any permits. He's clearly, too, you know, what what is it they call the, what is it they call it when you go to the film stock place and you buy not the full reels, but you buy, like, they call it something ends or something. You, if, you're on, if you're on filming on the cheap, you go and you buy not full reels because you can't afford a full reel. He's clearly sort of, Grabbing shots where he can, lighting with natural light if he can, just trying to move stuff along, not paying for it, trying to steal if he can, steal power if he can, you know. Um, he's a total guerrilla filmmaker, and unfortunately, he's not, <laughs> that means he's not careful enough of a filmmaker to make stunts not be dangerous. Yeah. Um, I, there's there's a, the commitment to that. I would say the interesting part about this is you kind of look at this with two levels. Is There's the sort of the story about Mark and his commitment to his dream. To, to making it as a filmmaker. And then I think there's the very real uh, commitment to Chris Smith and Sarah... I, I'm blanking on her name. The two, basically, the... Price, producer Sarah, Sarah Price. Sarah Price. The commitment of those people who... This is still... They're still filming on film to tell this story for over two years. Um, to not be... I'm sure they're not spending every day, all day, with Bo- Mark Borchardt and his family and friends, but they're spending a lot of time um, on film. And it's not, as you said before, it's not digital video. They only have a limited amount of film, and when that when that film is gone, they have to, you know, wrap it back up, send it somewhere, and get buy more film and come back. Like, it is an incredibly difficult, dangerous, and pain-in-the-ass process to sort of bust your ass for, like, two years and hope that something's going to be pulled out of this. And that, in and of itself, is an amazing feat. Just yeah. thinking... It's hard for us to think about it now, this day and age, because it's really easy to film a documentary, obviously. Well, you think of,
0: like, any reality show that's being made, that you have a show that has an hour every week of of programming, whether it's, like, The Real World or The Apprentice or, you know, Survivor. It's like you have an hour that actually gets aired after judicious editing. But there's hundreds of hours that have been done that entire week. That are just sitting somewhere never to be released because they either most of them are boring or maybe they paint your star in a really bad light and you want to continue to have a show. But either way, (laughs) you basically have so much footage that you can afford to film that much and throw it all away because you are making it on video because it costs you nothing to keep the camera on and hope something happens rather than keep the camera on worrying about whether you're going to still have film when you get to the interesting thing.
2: Yeah. I I kept wondering how different this process would have been if he was trying to make this movie 10 years later. Um, That if he'd had access to, to, you know, digital, if he'd had access to there's some, you know, digital editing alone just would make such a huge difference in the type of film you're able to produce. Right. So I I have an interesting uh, sort of insight into the filmmaking process because i was in a tiny little film i was in an idaho produced vampire movie what Whoa. i didn't know this patrick yeah uh <laughs> it's called the sanguinarian i've actually never seen it <laughs> by all reports it's terrible but um it, it was it was done by a group of people who just liked making movies but we started with the script that we used right we didn't we didn't start with I looked at the production movies of *Meetings of Northwestern*. And he's getting all these people ready to make this movie that's not at all ready to be made. Uh, yeah. As opposed to, you know, the process that I was in was amateur but so professional compared to, to the process that that I watched an American movie. But it's it's fun to watch these sort of scrappy people try and try and figure it out. I think what's compelling about Marky is that he is the kind of person who if his life had played out a little differently if his ambitions you know if he'd gone to film school or or uh he's the kind of person who gets things done uh and that is the american dream is the person who goes into terrible debt to make their passion project and then it all pays off we love the the kevin smith story yeah and this is just one of those times where it doesn't doesn't happen. Well, this
0: is one of those times is most times. Right, absolutely. <laughs> that, that you do get like a Kevin Smith situation where you put yourself in massive debt and then somehow you you pull out of this, this nose dive. It's a nose dive that almost always ends in a crash. Mm-hmm. And occasionally you get that last minute swoop. And another one is uh, Robert Kirkman who uh, created The Walking Dead. And not only is it a a huge comic book, but it's one of the biggest shows on television. It has a spinoff. It has video games and collectible card games and board games and all this merch. And that came about because he basically quit his job and decided to write full time and paid off credit cards with other credit cards. And if that hadn't worked, his life would have been ruined. It probably would have ended his marriage. It probably would have ended everything. He would have lost his house. He would have lost everything, but it worked and it it doesn't work for most people that the Mark Burchard' story is everyone else's story mm-hmm. that not everyone you know who is self taught and throws themselves into this dream profession that very few people make it in. I mean we're here making a podcast, and we're we live in a world that is full of you know Kevin Smiths and all of these people that are that are you know comedians and other folks that, that have these huge audiences or even the rare people who create something amazing and we're swimming swimming against uh, really really against sharp rocks the odds of us <laughs> making it so we just try to the, thankfully we don't have the costs that are associated with filmmaking especially pre-digital so i mean the odds of us being a huge deal is pretty slim, so we kind of get to that point where you kind of have to love it. Yeah,
1: of course, and uh, Mark does love it. I mean, Mark l- loves it. You could—he just surrounds himself with it, and that's his his lifelong obsession. I mean, uh, so Coven is sort of a failure as a movie, and. That's the, that is also one of the major themes of the movie is just a fuck up, a loser, you know. But is it like but, a Rocky
0: victory? I mean, uh, Rocky lost the fight at the end of that movie, but he finished it.
1: There's 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 a charm that breaks through for Mark Borchardt, and, and um, whether or not it's just sort of like, well, is he is he just a huckster and is able to talk his way uh, to convince people or out of situations? Like, I'm just thinking, you know. Well, like when huck,
0: he, I think he was a huckster, he'd keep more of the money. Sure. But he's pouring all of it into this project. I mean, he is not in a good place financially. I, I just have written down sort of these
1: moments that get captured here, and these are obviously small, select moments among the tapestry of his life over this time. So when he's at the first Northwestern production meeting and he describes a junkyard full of rusted memories, or he says in Coven he's filmed with every F-stop known to man, <laughs> or... He's uh, when he's writing. I'm trying to give them destinies, like this sort of thing where his is is not just that he has a way with words, because he definitely does have a way with words. But you imagine a counterpart to Mark Borchard, who grew up in Northwestern Milwaukee, who's a hard drinker, who holds down menial jobs or whatever. You imagine his counterpart just has no, has nowhere near that sort of level of grandiosity in their perception of the world, and yet he does. And that's something that's special and romantic, you know, that part of, it, but not just to drink and dream, but to create and complete. Like, that part is like, there is a spark in this guy.
0: Yeah, you know? I and I, I get that. I think for me, I mean, I am somebody who did briefly go to a non-accredited film school, and uh, I worked as a production assistant on a number of things. So there's something about working on a film set that is very familiar. Uh, my hand appears in a short film called <laughs> Dreams of a Cryotank. Um, <laughs> yeah. I was a an, a an assistant to the set builder on that one. And I was basically just drilling kick pads on fake doors on a hallway for a fake uh, insane asylum nice and uh the guy <laughs> who was supposed to play an extra one of the evil orderlies who <laughs> is harassing and oppressing this guy who's come out of cryostasis in a future that he can't possibly understand um has to be restrained by somebody Wait, was this
1: before or after futurama uh
0: this would have been at about the same time as futurama. yeah Um, and, uh, they needed another orderly and they said, you seem to be about the right size. So they put me into a, a, a pair of black scrubs. Cause I guess when you're an evil orderly in a dark, (laughs) oppressive future, you're not going to wear like, you know, you're not going to wear sea green anymore. So, um, (laughs) we have to throw this guy against a wall and I'm the guy who syringes him in the butt. (laughs) So you see my hand go up, grab the guy's butt, (laughs) stab them right between the forefinger and the thumb. And I've got like a fake syringe that doesn't have a needle full of what appears to be black liquid in it. Nice. And uh, of all the things that I worked on... Was it your proudest moment? uh, It was pretty cool. Um, I I think the first take, I did kind of an action slide on my knees and they were like, oh, a little less... (laughs) A little less action hero with that. (laughs) And I just just walk up, get down to my knees. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I know what that's like. There's a certain excitement that you're working on a movie. Like there's a project. I've never seen the script. I know almost nothing about it. These people are doing it. I'm just here because I want to be a part of this. This is the industry that I wanted to, to be a part of. I wanted to make movies in any capacity, even if it's just, you know, being the guy who helps a guy do stuff on the set, even if it means that uh, there's a hole in this, this studio isn't really soundproof. So I need to go outside and throw rocks at crows to make them go away because you can hear them inside the studio. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm familiar with that. And so I do have a real affection for documentaries that that go into that world. Um but even compared to the low-budget things like you were mentioning before, Patrick, this is serious amateur hour. This is sometimes painful to watch. And uh, how little anybody knows what they're doing and how they're only there. Like his mom holding the camera in that one shot where she clearly doesn't understand his direction to make sure that he's framed correctly. And she'll like take her hand off the, the trigger, I guess you could say, of the camera. So it stops playing. And it's, it's both frustrating, both on his behalf and against him at the same time. And it's a weird emotional tug of war to be in, where I both feel for his mom, but I also get frustrated with his mom because it seems like simple directions. <laughs> so we didn't... I wanted, This is one thing I
1: want to talk about. So his mom, uh, it's sort of implied very early on in the movie that their family, their dynamic between their mom and their dad didn't like one another, and they're just sort of together in a miserable marriage. And you kind of get the sense that they live in two domains where mom's in the kitchen all the time and dad's sitting in the den or whatever, you know, TV movie. Um, But of all the people around Mark, not including Mike Shank, his mom is the one who's there driving him around to put up flyers. His mom is the one operating the camera when he needs someone to operate the camera. His mom is clearly the one that's there giving him gas money when he needs gas money. Um, And there's the... This, the infamous Super Bowl scene. So this, oh. it was just it just so happened that this year I think it was ninety five or whatever it was that the Green Bay Packers won the Super Bowl and they're in Green Bay. You know they're they're near Green. They're basically where the hotbed of Packers fans and um, uh, Mike has been drinking. Mike has had a. Twelve pack of PBR or something in the freezer, and he's completely lit up. And Mike Shank comes over, having just won money on scratchets, and he doesn't he doesn't want to tell anyone because he doesn't want them to take he's his got money. A big smile on his face, right, right. The um, so they win, and Mark goes on this diatribe uh, as sort of like, "Look at these guys! On, w- look at these guys winning who've achieved their dreams, not like those bitch ass motherfuckers working forty days a week." Um, and then he says something which I think almost makes me turn on mark because he starts to you know he mike won't go with him his mom won't drive him to the bar he wants his mom to drive him to the bar at this point and he's clearly had way too much um he says you just stand there going back to your 40 hour week or standing around in your kitchen and it's clearly directed towards his mom and it's the one point where it's like he will shit in every nest that he has, because she's probably the one person in the world that will not give up on him, and that is the heartbreak most heartbreaking thing for you to see Mark Borchard do in this movie and you you kind of get a sense of like you could have easily had the whole movie turn on Mark Borchard if you didn't find a way to sort of like pull him back from that moment because that moment is just really difficult to yeah watch. it's oh god it's it is deeply uncomfortable it's upsetting. There, I mean, there, and there are, those are those moments are few and far between. Like he's his ex wife and father and mother of his children. They're sort of arguing, and you're seeing this argument play out between them. That you can tell it's an argument that's happened a hundred times before. You know, the kids are in the car, and they're just like yelling, yelling at each other. Um, and those moments, you're just like, this is there's great sadness in this movie, and it's great that they were so sparing with it, but it's also. I think it's important that they would have left it in for you to know. Like this guy is not just on this happy quest to you know where he just he only exists on filming days. No, there are days in between where the, his life sucks, and that's part of the tapestry of this this character and his his dilemma and the well,
2: sacrifices that he makes aren't just for his own sacrifices. He's also sacrificing like he's not spending time with his kids, yeah. and he's not. There are there are other things in his life that affect other people. That was maybe what I had the hardest time with, is realize that, you know, all his passion and dedication is great when your life is your own, but he has three kids, and mm, yeah. there, there's some really interesting sort of telling interviews where the filmmakers had the kids all lined up in folding chairs <laughs> and sort of answer, answering questions, and you know, he brought he brought his, like, four-year-old son to Apocalypse Now, <laughs> <laughs> and they're just like, yeah, did you like it? And he's like, yeah, the horror, the horror. <laughs> Um, in part, you know, maybe that it's that arrested development thing that he, he doesn't seem to really be want to be a parent to his kids. He's willing to be their friend. Yeah. Um, but by no means do you get the sense that he's willing to raise them?
0: Well, he's not willing to, to break in any way from this project that he has to spend time with them. And that's the other thing too, is that the great sacrifices he's making aren't just to himself. Like you mentioned, it's the demands that he has on everybody. Yeah, who this is not their dream, but he sort of expects it's like and you watch the wire, it's like McNulty syndrome where it's I'm willing to break myself, you know, attacking this brick wall and I will scream at you and I will guilt you and I will shame you for not being willing to do something futile just as I'm doing it that you have to be willing to destroy yourself in a way that will get no positive results or I will just I will turn my anger on you too. And those are the parts that it becomes harder to watch him. Those are the parts where the the people that, like I mentioned, he seems to resent the most of the people that he desperately needs the most. And it's mm-hmm. this, it's it's painful to watch it because their tolerance for him is like saint-like. Like his mom or Mike or anyone else that gets pulled into his orbit, that he doesn't seem to understand why they aren't fighting as hard for his dream as he is. Because he sees it as like an escape route to this life that he does not want. And he doesn't understand why they don't want that escape route, too. Like, he doesn't want to limit the number of people that he's going to let into the, you know, the life raft. He wants them all to come in, too. And he screams at them because he doesn't understand why they don't want to get on board. Except the life raft isn't really (laughs) seaworthy. And that's the part that he sort of deluded himself from. His understanding. I mean, he's like you mentioned. It is his willingness to 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 shit in every nest. People don't have confidence that he's going to finish this anymore. No, and it. His, I, when
1: when his mom also it's heartbreaking when his mom says, "Do you think he'll make it?" And she's like, "No." That must have been really difficult for Mark just personally to have that question be posed and have the probably the one person who supports him the most say, "I don't think he's going to make it." Like that's uh, that's awful. But uh, so we're kind of we're we're. But bar- bar- barreling down on our time here, but there was one question that I've had, I think, since I first watched this film. Um, I think I read an interview that along like early 2000s that Mark talked about being cast, being cast, quote unquote, in this film by Chris Smith and uh, suggesting that the film is in some way a construction of the filmmakers and less about reality. And, you know, of course, all documentaries are have subjects of some kind of storytelling in the way that it's assembled, you know? Um, But I, can you, I, I'm asking you, throwing it out to you too. Can you imagine that this is, there is a lot of direction from the filmmakers and editors um so, so far as well, we're putting Mike here in this and Mike and Mark in this situation to do it, or how, how honest is this on the scale of sort of, you know, just like your home movies to,
0: you know, the apprentice, how honest is it between that scale? I, I think, more than he'd like to admit now that it's out because there's very few people in an acting position. One is I've actually seen Coven. So I know what kind of an actor Mark Borchardt is. Um, and he's not this good. Um, also people with the exception of, you know, rare actors in rare films like Jean-Claude Van Damme and JCVD sure are willing to allow themselves to be portrayed in a way that is so frequently uncomfortable and unflattering, and there's a sadness and almost kind of a pathetic nature to him at times. And if it was constructed, there's no way that he would want that to be the construction, not intentionally. That I think he wants to be the tortured artist. I think he wants to be the guy who's struggling it. I think in his own head, he wants to be kind of like Sean Astin in the movie Rudy, Hmm. where he's sort of overcoming these obstacles that are put in front of him, that he doesn't have the training or the necessary talent, but, you know... He's just so, you know, he has so much spirit that the whole, you know, crowd will rise up and chant his name, except that's not really what he gets. I think that frequently he's kind of bullying and demanding and um, petulant, and he's clearly has a mushrooming drinking problem, and he doesn't come across as a great father or a great son or a great brother that you never see his brothers actually interact with him. They only have little side pieces, uh, you know, where they talk testimonial side to the camera, including the one where his brother does say, you know, I would have thought he would have become a serial killer. Like, they've so written this off in the same way that dad has, where they just sort of exist in a separate world from his quest to make films. Only his mom, like you mentioned, hasn't given up on that and helps him regardless. The rest of them are just going... I'm, I just don't want to watch this fail again. I don't want to see him go through that, and I don't want him to put me through that. Mm. Well, what do you think? Uh, do you think
1: How much of this do you think is constructed, and how much of it is serendipitous?
2: It, it's really hard to tell without seeing what gets left out. You do yeah. have a lot of discretion with, uh, you know, you film for that amount of time, a lot of stuff does get left on the, on the floor, and you can construct a narrative to an extent. It felt, everything that happened felt genuine uh, to me, I, I didn't get it. The only one who seems stilted is Mike. And I think he's just like that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, that, and the, the process, I think maybe, I don't know if, I wonder if he would have finished Coven if he hadn't had the documentaries, filmmakers watching him because the fire lit underneath him. Yeah. Because he has a pressure, you know, he, he lured them out because he was making Northwestern and then, then he's not even doing that. Um, so I I could see maybe the filmmakers being like okay so what are you working on in the movie today. Right. Um and and that he needs that to to you know make his make his dreams come true. Uh I saw him on I watched part of him on Letterman like some years later and they asked him like what are you up to and you know he's doing some acting roles and he's still working on Northwestern. He's still you know still working on that script. Um yeah, so the update on Mark
1: Barchard now which I which I sort of gleaned over is that he's sober and he still lives in Milwaukee in, in Northwest Milwaukee and he is still a writer and I think he was they were talking about um some of his plays being produced at local local theaters in in Milwaukee. So, um he's someone who clearly never gave up but you know, you can go on IMDb and Northwestern never happened. So, no. you know, we we know the end of the story and the end of the story is Northwestern feels like it was in the movie, something that was fated
0: just never to happen. Well, how could you even make it at this point? He started filming that movie with himself in the lead in 1990 that he wouldn't even visually match up with himself. Now, if you made that, that's, it's a movie that has been in production for essentially almost 30 years. That's crazy. There's no way you can construct that without having to make it all
2: over again from scratch. I think it would break his heart to cast someone else as him.
0: <laughs> I don't even know who you could cast as him.
2: So that that
1: that reminds me there's uh although we can't compare these two filmmakers in any way, they're not apples to apples. Um I feel the same way about Mark Borchard putting casting himself in his own movies as I do when Quentin Tarantino casts himself in his own movies. And every single time I'm like if you put someone else
0: in here it would be better. <laughs> every time it would be better. But I think we said that with Django uh, Unchained that that would have been a great opportunity for a random Paul Hogan cameo. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Hogan, uh, Crocodile Dundee is a racist slaver, <laughs> but the uh, the I guess that leads us to our our final question: Is American movie worth your time, Patrick?
2: Uh, I. I loved it. I I had a great time with it. I think that it's both a slice of American life that you just otherwise don't get to see, and that's always fascinating for me, but also that there is something so compelling and relatable about this guy who um, has has missed chances in the past, but really wants to take a shot at making making his dreams. And there is something heroic about taking the type of risks that he's willing to take. Uh, I ended up thinking about there's the, the quote from that old Apple ad uh, that, you know, the ones who are crazy enough to think that they can change the world are the ones that do. And the truth is that most people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are just crazy. Um, <laughs> but it's still, we need those people. We need those people who are driving us forward. I was, he's, he's almost, he's he's a Randian figure. He's a he's oh. Howard Rourke without any, you know, without the, the skills to make it actually come true. And... Yes, he's dragging people into his world, but not unwillingly. Like, it, you know, what else would they be doing if, it, if they weren't here ma- helping him make a movie? When, when I was when I had my tiny little part in the vampire movie, it was what I looked forward to all week. It was like, hey, you know, c- come Saturday, I get to you know, dress up and be in that vampire movie. And without the people who have the drive to make that thing happen, whether or not it's actually worth doing... um, you know, we we need those those people. We need that spirit, and it, it makes her an incredibly compelling figure. And uh, yeah, I I I, w- I would recommend it to just about anyone.
1: Uh, this movie is funny as fuck. <laughs> like it's difficult for you to imagine um, that if you should just sort of drop yourselves in the life of these people that are living in a suburb of a place that most people don't know about. You know, most people don't understand Wisconsin at all. There is a there is a lot of unintentional hilarity that sort of wrapped around this guy and his story um and it's it's it it does the good thing that all good art does is that it makes you feel not just one thing but lots of different things like you feel entertained and you feel sort of enthralled and sometimes disgusted and you know frustrated um, but you but you know luckily there are some talented filmmakers behind it so it's a very satisfying ride at the end certainly having sort of uncle bill's sort of epitaph is being the, you know, oh he donated $50,000 towards the production of Northwestern which where did that money go? I don't know. Um, but like it's an incredibly funny and satisfying and sweet
0: movie and it holds up on rewatch. Um I I would say so too. I'd say definitely this is worth watching. It's worth seeking out if you haven't seen it, especially if you've ever worked in a film set. And I think the the phrase I kept coming back to in my head while watching this was it's like Stanley Kubrick without the genius. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that when you watch documentaries about Stanley Kubrick there's a one called S's for Stanley which was uh, it's not on Netflix it's about like his longtime like personal assistant. There's also the one about the making of The Shining, where you get to see him bully Shelley Duvall to tears uh, during the, the filming of like the blizzard scene where she's running away from Jack Nicholson. And he's doing it intentionally because he's trying to get a performance out of her, which is like post-traumatic horror as, as she's fleeing for her life. And he does that by bullying the people around him that working for Kubrick is kind of sounds like hell. I mean, every version of it sounds like a fucking nightmare, but everyone who works for Kubrick after that nightmare is over probably has the best movie on their resume and they're like, okay, I'll put up with the abuse. I'll put up with the crazy things I'll put up with the mind games. But I get to be in a Stanley Kubrick movie. I get to be in something like Clockwork Orange. I get to be in something like Full Metal Jacket. And it's like, holy crap. And I'll have that for the rest of my life. I get to mention, hey, I was that guy, even if you're a minor character. So I was thinking about that that experience of working for a filmmaker and how much that reminded me of how Mark Borchard handles these situations where he's practically driving people to tears he's pushing a guy's head through a cupboard door <laughs> i mean it looks like a fucking nightmare but at the end of it you don't have that genius you don't have that you know i'm putting up with this shit but i'm working for mark Borchard you I mean there's nobody that's there for the status or for like i want to be attached to the something that's definitely going to be a masterpiece uh, but they're going through the same hell regardless. That They don't... Nobody in Coven still brags about being in Coven. <laughs> they probably brag more about being an American movie. True. And I, I think that was so weird about this. And like you mentioned, how different this movie would have been if it had been 10 years later. And how much easier it would have been on Mark and for all the people around him at every stage. And it's it's crazy because it seems like this had to happen in the years that it happened. It's weird because, like, the year that this movie came out was the same year that The Phantom Menace came out. The Phantom Menace was the first major motion picture done entirely on digital video. And you... C- you're not going to get an experience like this movie. Now you'll get a lot of unfinished movies that get made, but you don't get ones that just take such a toll on every single human being. And we are remarkably lucky that there were cameras that wanted to watch this because if all we had is Coven, we wouldn't care. Yeah. But you know, because we have that context, because we have American movie, it makes COVID kind of fascinating to watch because That fight scene where his head goes through there, a couple of those shots are literally the stuff with his head just bouncing off of that. And that is probably a really effective stunt because you really are hurting your actor. Um, But yeah, I need that sort of context. I think this movie is definitely worth searching out and you should check it out immediately. Yeah, for real. So, uh, Patrick, I want to thank you for being part of this conversation with us. Yeah, thank you both. Uh, Patrick Johnson, if uh, people want to see more of what you may be working on, is there anything you'd like to plug? Nope. All right. (laughs) That was the shortest segment ever. (laughs) Mike,
1: I just want to let you know, if there was something that was happening, would you just, like, centrifugally know to
2: center on the action? I would hope
0: so. (laughs) (laughs) I would hope so.
2: I say fans of this movie should check out the Dawn of the Dead commentary. Oh, yeah. They made for G4. Nice. Oh, good Lord.
0: That's probably a nightmare. So again, <laughs> uh, thank you, Patrick. And a special thanks to our episode sponsors, Larry Brunswick, Margaret King, and Tim Batson. If you want to become one of our episode sponsors, check us out on patreon.com slash radio versus the Martians or radio versus the Help out the show. And there's a lot of cool stuff in it for you on Patreon. So, we're actually going to take a break for the month of July, but we oh, will yes. be back in August with a full panel episode. So, in two months, I guess we'll see you then. Okay, bye bye. <laughs> Radio vs. the Martians
1: is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Val Verde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Doran, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobiah Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Dan Lombardo please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVsTheMartians.com.
3: It's the first line of the film, man. It's got to be on the money here. Roll down the window, Bill. It's alright uh, Okay, caught. Alright, man. Shit. It's you gotta give it some passion too, man. And you gotta It's alright, it's okay. There's something to live for. Ooh. Jesus told me so. It's alright.
4: Uh, there's something to live for. Jesus told me so.
3: Okay, great feel, but we gotta. We have to have fluidity in there. It's all right. It's okay. Uh, okay, uh, okay, cut. You've got to bring oh, passion to it. A message. It's a message. This it's, is
4: the, for the shits and for the birds. <laughs> this is for the birds.
3: Okay, I believe we can do this. I believe this can be done, Bill. Hey, man, Mike, why don't you keep track of what takes these are, man? Is this fucking take seven? seven, Okay, let's do take seven, man. It's all right. It's okay. Um, Cut. Okay. You have to believe in what you're saying, Bill.
4: You don't? Well, I don't. I don't believe nothing what you're doing.
3: All right. Give it some passion. It's all right. It's okay. There's something to live for. Jesus told me so. You did it before. You can do it again. Okay, this is take eight.
4: It's all right. It's okay. Uh...
3: Okay, that's fine. You got to watch your teeth, too, because they clack a little bit when they loosen up in the mouth. And take ten.
4: It's all right. It's okay. It's something to live for. Jesus told me so.
3: Bill, you couldn't ask for anything better. I think it was recorded too high. Give it all you got. Uh, What take is this? This is take 16. Let's go. Take 30. All right. Hold up. Take 30.
4: It's all right. It's okay. uh, Jesus told me so. There's something to live for. Okay.
3: Cut. Take 31.
4: Is that enough now? No. Listen, Bill. I ain't going to do this anymore. That's all for me.
3: Goodbye. Okay. Uh, I'm gonna see what we have to work with I'm gonna Jesus Christ man